don't think I'll shock anyone when I share this. I actually sat down and calculated. We are, as of this moment, two-thirds of the way through our Advent journey already this, this year. Uh, that's what happens when it's only three weeks in a day. But as we gather this day, we, we do rejoice because we know our salvation is nearer now than what it was when we first believed, as St. Paul will tell us. We know that this Advent is not just about celebrating the birth of our Lord, but preparing for his coming too. And so what, what the church gives us to reflect on is not just a calling to mind of what has happened, but of using that to remind ourselves that we need to be prepared for his return. And I found myself meditating these last week. Uh, I invited us to ask the Blessed Mother to be with us and how her life was so marked with humility. The week before, St. Joseph and his life marked with humility. And today I would invite us, and we'll get there and explain that a little bit more, but John the Baptist and his life marked with humility. As we gather this day, we hear people coming to him and asking him, who are you? Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes that's a hard question to answer. Uh, we want to go to what, what we do sometimes, or, or we might start describing ourselves by uh, our relationships with various people or whatever. But, uh, but when John is asked, he admitted and did not deny it, but admitted. I, I was counting up last night, and I lost count how many times we hear ad admission or said or replied or testimony or testify. All these words have various nuances, but they're a proclamation. And John saying, I am not the Christ. He's not the anointed one who's been sent into the world to save us. He's not the Elijah. He's not the prophet. So who is he? And he says he reduces himself to the voice crying out in the desert. And that's not necessarily reduction, but it, again, it reminds he is the one who's preparing the way of the Lord, as we heard last week. He's the one who is uh, making straight the path. Now, uh, we know he's certainly not the Christ, because that would be uh, imply that he's the Messiah, and, and he's not, and he knows he's not. And we might say, well, why isn't he the prophet then? If you're following along or, or look at this in, in your Bibles at home or, or whatever, you will see that prophet is capitalized. And that's a particular person that Moses himself had prophesied that would come. Uh, if you remember, uh, Moses, uh, there was a time in, in the Exodus when God spoke to all the people and they begged God and they begged Moses to tell God not to speak to us like that again. And Moses told them that God will raise up a prophet who will speak to them. And that's what prophet is. So, so often in our modern sense of prophet, we have an idea of somebody who's, who tells the future. That isn't the Old Testament and New Testament idea of prophet. In fact, the best analogy we have for prophet is the press agent of our president. Somebody who knows the mind of the person that they are speaking for and speaks on behalf of. So sometimes, yes, it's, it's sometimes there's some prophecy or whatever, but most of the time it's just speaking on behalf of. A prophet speaks on behalf of God. Moses is not the prophet who was sent Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. And as uh, we reflect, we might call to mind, well, Jesus is more than a spokesperson. He is the Son of God. And he speaks on behalf of the Father, however. So then, in that regard, he is the prophet. 
But John rejects that he's the Elijah, even. And Jesus elsewhere will tell us, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah. So which is it? He is or he isn't? I think this is John's own humility. John speaking and saying, I'm not, I'm not the one who, who's Elijah, who's uh, speaking and preparing the way of the Lord in that regard, like Elijah did, but rather, I'm the voice. A voice crying out in the desert. He is the voice telling people to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And they ask him, well, why then do you baptize? Um, we do have to make a distinction here. This baptism is not the baptism that we celebrate uh, as a sacrament. The sacraments did not get their power, their efficacy, uh, and even uh, establishment until after the death and resurrection of our Lord. Somebody asked me last night, well, what about marriage? Marriage was before, but it wasn't a sacrament before. It is a sacrament now for those who uh, enter into it uh, through the church and, and uh, such. And <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I realize how, how our Lord would want that to be a sacrament. You need grace to live a married life. We need, I need grace to live the holy orders. Uh, Deacon Bruce, I'm sure, needs grace to live both. Not to, not to make fun of Deacon Bruce this morning. But we know this. this the sacraments are given to, to us to give grace. But the sacrament of baptism that we receive washes away original sin and gives us grace. The baptism John gave didn't, did not do that, but rather was a recognition that I am a sinner, that I need to be cleansed. And so they would, uh, in the Jewish world, they would have what's called mikvahs, ceremonial baths that they would go down into, they would dunk themselves and come back up as a reminder that they need to be, needed to be purified. But it didn't wash away original sin. John baptizes with water. One coming after will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I don't know if you are aware how un unworthy that must be. Uh, if you remember back, this dates me and, uh, quite a bit, but I remember uh, watching the news of a certain uh, reporter throwing, picking off, off his shoe and throwing it at President Bush uh, in the, one of the Arab countries and, and uh, the newscasters saying, well, in this culture, this is, this is a sign of insult. Well, I can't name a culture where throwing a shoe at somebody is a great compliment either, but especially in the Middle East. You could not force somebody to touch your feet. For John to say, I'm not even worthy to touch his feet, is unworthy as all get out. John saying, this one who is coming is perfect, is holy, and you need to be prepared for his coming. Elsewhere, John will tell us uh, that we need to repent. Not so much here, although that's the intimation he's making, we need to repent. We need to acknowledge that we are broken, that we are sinners, that we are in need of God's mercy. So often when we hear that word repent, we might, we might object and say, well, I'm not a mass murderer. I don't commit adultery. I don't, I'm not out there spreading rumors all, the, all over the place, or I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, stealing or using drugs or all these things. What do I need to repent from? Well, as soon as we say, what do I need to repent from? Maybe pride is one of those, but that, that's another story. But repentance isn't always going from bad to good. 
but from going from good to better, to prepare our hearts and minds in repentance. And it dawned on me, so often we want to jump to reconciliation because that's where our Lord is. Our Lord is always willing to reconcile with us. After all, that's why he sent his Son to us. But that reconciliation is dependent upon our repentance. We need to repent. We need to acknowledge that we are not the perfect ones we think we are. And maybe the humility of John the Baptist can remind us, too. He who is not even worthy to touch the shoes, the sandals of our Lord, reminds us how holy Christ is and not to take advantage or for granted the reconciliation that is ours. Sometimes the repentance that we need is just a moment of, I need to live a different life. I need to, to, not necessarily a sin, but I need to let that go in order to hold on to our Lord a little bit more. And sometimes it might be require the sacrament of reconciliation. If that's the case, I invite you to use that sacrament and use it well, never to be embarrassed or ashamed that you have to use it. I am deeply, deeply convinced that shame comes from Satan himself, that shame does not allow us to go to our Lord, but rather sticks us and pricks us and hurts us. Guilt, on the other hand, reminds us that we've done something wrong and we need to go to God and receive his grace again. I've shared the story once in a while, and and I need to be careful because it's one of those that shows how much of a jerk I can be at times, but I had somebody come up to me at a previous parish a long time ago, and, and I knew he was a convert to the faith. And he said, well, when I converted, Father told me that I didn't have to go to the Sacrament of Reconciliation at all. So even though I've been Catholic for 20, 30 years, I've never gone. I said, oh, really? I, I, I knew you weren't Catholic, but uh, what were you before you converted? And he said, Methodist. I said, well, really? I didn't know Methodists were sinless. I realized uh, that we had the kind of relationship that I could say such a thing, but anyone else, it might be a little insulting. And even then, it might have been a little insulting. A week later, he was in the sac- receiving the Sacrament of Reconciliation for the first time. And a month after that, he died. I thank God, even though it was a little crass how I approached it, I thank God he made use of the Sacrament of Reconciliation. I don't remember what he confessed, and if I did, I wouldn't tell you anyway. But we all need, all need repentance. We all need to repent and confess that we are sinners, that we have failed. And sometimes we need that sacrament of reconciliation to be able to move ahead. We know that God is good, that God loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross and give us new life. Let us not be, uh, take this for granted. Let us not just assume that the Lord is going to forgive, but rather to seek reconciliation by first seeking to be repentant, to seek the Lord, to repent of our sins, and to come to a better life.